0: You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. My name is Kristen Harcourt, and I'm your host. Today, we are speaking about a topic that I hope everyone gets excited about because it's about play. We have Jeff Perry. Jeff is a workplace play consultant. He is an international speaker and positive psychology play coach. Jeff helps individuals and companies navigate difficult conversations and address their most challenging issues using play and positive psychology. Welcome to the show, Jeff.
1: What's up? I'm amped to be here.
0: Well, if, if people could see, so I, there's going to be some seeing this on video, some that we'll be hearing on audio. There was some good, playful action happening from Jeff as I was introducing him. <laughs> so, Jeff, as a starting point, what got you into this work? Sure.
1: I'll go through the Batman origin story, but I'll be, I'll be brief with my origin. So, do you remember the movie Big with Tom Hanks?
0: I do, I love it. I always think sure. of that toy store and playing on the music. Right. right,
1: dancing on that piano. So he danced on the piano and then that, that uh, CEO offered him a job to play with toys for a living. And I saw that in third grade and I was like, you can do that? <laughs> that is a job? So I went down to F.A.L. Schwartz in third grade and started dancing on a piano and no CEO offered me a job. I was very disappointed. So I went home and started writing toy companies and I just didn't stop. Like I didn't stop for like 15 years. Like I was spamming before spam was a thing. Like it was, it was ridiculous. And then I eventually got in the toy industry and I don't know if you've ever gotten exactly what you've always wanted and then been so disappointed when you arrive, but like that's exactly what happened. Like no toys, no fun, no high fives, adults being way too serious you know, we might as well have been selling pillows or socks or microwaves. Like, it didn't really matter. And then I was in a cubicle. I was like, why are these walls padded? Like, I just don't understand what's happening here. Um, So I remember leaving New York, coming to the Bay Area, um, bumping into a job on Craigslist that was paying $150 a week, teaching kids engineering with Lego. It was like a joke of a job. It was like, but you got to play for a living. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be amazing. I'll, I'll make this a thing. And I doubled down and, and helped build it. And it went from seven people to 400 people. And we grew it into the largest Allegro-inspired STEM organization in the US. But we did it all by playing. Like we had no idea what we were doing. No business plan ever pick cities we thought were fun, pick people we thought were fun, and just messed around, just experimented, failed miserably, and then would try something else. And we got so big at one point that we were teaching 100,000 kids a year that we got the attention of Silicon Valley, Facebook, Google, Adobe, all of those, you know, organizations, Um, and... They were like, do you do team building events? We're like, of course we do. (laughs) (laughs) No, we didn't, but we did. But the rule of play is to just experiment and say yes, right? A lot of yes and. Um, And then so I ended up for the next decade running team building events for the top tech companies in the world. And what I found was at the same time that they talked about disruption and innovation and risk-taking and all these buzzwords, right? In many ways, in my opinion, they weren't doing any of it or they weren't doing enough of it. So I realized, you know, they weren't having really hard conversations. So I created Rediscover Your Play to create psychologically safe workspaces where you can take risks, where you can, you know, actually, you know, be yourself, where you can deal with toxicity at work, you know, in a, in a helpful, you know, successful way. And I do that all through positive psychology and play.
0: Mm. I love that story for so many reasons, one being it totally makes sense for you as the grade three that you're thinking, okay, the way to be able to be able to play is to go where there's going to be a toy manufacturer because you think the perception is Mm -hmm. it's going to look like that and then get in there and then realize, actually, there's not a lot of play here, even less than I had anticipated, but such a good reminder that you already knew as that grade three, right? That it's, I feel like this is there in all of us, right? We know those times where there's a part of you that knew in a very real way, like that's the work that I'm called to do. Maybe weren't able to articulate it at that age, but it's the experimenting and the iterations that get you to that place that eventually made you recognize, oh, I'm supposed to be the one that's actually creating the environment where all of this play is happening.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. Because I mean, even now, I'm using play to tackle really hard issues, right? Toxic masculinity. How do you mediate a hard conversation? How do you deal with that person that starts with the letter A at work? We're like, you know, all these things that like, but I'm using play to do it because, you know, I realize like, that's the stuff that actually interests me the most, right? Like, I just want people to enjoy going back to work you know, and we were talking about this beforehand, like, you know, I think people are already playing at work. They're just playing a role they may not want to play. They're pretending to be the senior manager that knows what they're doing. They're pretending to be like the boss that like, you know, is very clear and doesn't have any anxiety when clearly you do like, you know, and all I'm saying is why can't you play a role that you actually want to play? The reason why a lot of people get ill and sick like, or get that bad feeling on a Monday where they don't want to go to work is because they have to pretend to be somebody for like the next 40 to 60 hours. Like, oh, like that's horrible, you know? So like, why are we doing that to ourselves? And especially, and I just heard this stat the other day, which is super interesting. 80% of people in the US do not want to go back to the office full time. Like, dude, like, yo, that means like these bosses have to figure out reasons for them to come back. They need to bring fun back to the office because you got to give them a reason because if you force them to come back, they're going to quit.
0: They're just going to quit. Yes. Yeah, I say this a lot, that one of the, the, the silver linings with the global pandemic, it has been a reset for some people, and they recognize many of the things that they were tolerating. And then they're like, nope, nope, I'm not tolerating that anymore.
1: Yep. All those micromanagers that were like, you can't work at home because you won't be productive, and now you've been productive for the last year, and now they're like, come back to the office. No, I don't want to come back to the audit office, Judith. You know, I'm not hanging out with you. Like, sorry, Chad, but I'm like, I don't want to be next to you on a regular basis, wanting to sh- wanting to strangle you. And then on top of it, being in a commute. Like, yeah. I, what was it before the pandemic? Eight years of your life were devoted to yes. commuting in the US. Yes. Eight years of your life. Why? For what? So that I can sit next to Chad so Chad can babysit me? Like, come on, people. Like, we're we're more sophisticated than that
0: yeah absolutely I've, I've the commute one has been a lot of people that's a deal breaker for them going forward um and gratefully so right they're they're figuring out what they need and i think they didn't recognize their needs until they had a chance to actually slow down <laughs> forcefully slow down and recognize oh my needs aren't being met here what do i actually want I've been so busy in autopilot. I haven't had the time and space to ever ask, even ask myself those questions.
1: Yeah. And and I've been saying this to companies for a while now, right? Where it's like, you know, Steven Johnson says the future is where people are having the most fun. Mm. And, You know, if your company is not bringing shared humanity back to the workplace, bringing empathy, you know, actually learning your emotional intelligence skills, your EQ skills, which I hate, by the way, I hate that term, because it's basically like, hey, how do you be a human being? Let's come (laughs) up with a term for it. But it's just like, just just be human, right? Um, And the more you are actually able to care about your staff, the more you're actually going to... Get out of them. And I don't think a lot of people really understand that. And when I talk about that, I talk about like, you know, do you, I ask team leaders all the time, do you know your staff's zone of genius? Do you mm-hmm. know their e guy? And they're like, "What is what do you mean by that? What is the work where they forget about time? What is the work that they would love to do most where even if they weren't getting paid, they would do this work? You need to find out what they do for that work because that is their flow work. And studies find that if they do more of that work, that it has a—they're um, five times more productive, mm-hmm. and also they do all of their other work in a more exponential way, right? So there's that. And then also you have to take in consideration the fact of like, what percentage of time are they currently doing that zone of genius work? Is it only 10%? Fifth, Like find out and be like, how can I increase it by five or 10%? Because it's probably also gonna help your bottom line when they're like, well, I love talking to clients. What do you do right now? Oh, you only talk to them 10% of the time. If we could double that, which is only like a couple hours a week, they'll be happier. They're more likely to stay. They're more likely to be productive. They're more likely to invite other people to come because they'll be like, hey, my boss really cares about my work. You should also come and work for us. But right now people are doing the opposite and being like, let's just tell them what they need to do and not really think about like individualizing, you know, how how you manage your staff.
0: Well, what I love there is, first of all, it's a co-creation, right? So that individual and the leader are working together. What else was um, popping up for me as you were saying that, and I feel like that's where I've noticed a lot of shifts, is that leader themselves are also going on that journey because a lot of times they're not doing the work that's in flow. So if they start to do more of that for themselves, then they recognize, oh my gosh, this is so powerful. Then it's even easier for them to be able to um, really get not on an intellectual level, but on a, uh, they're, they're able to get, I want to say heart, but on a, on a yeah. bodying, embodying and really understanding yeah. what that means.
1: Yeah. And you said something that's really important because think about it bosses that hate their job, then haze everyone else into hating their job right and like that's pre-pandemic thinking man you try that same stuff now Gen Zers will not tolerate this they will bounce within like a couple months and then if you're like well you know well, well you know it's I'm sure it sounds great to like play and whatever it is but like are there any stats that match this and it's just like well, look at Google's twenty percent program, which they actually stopped. I don't know why, but they have this—they had this twenty percent program where they gave their staff a fifth of their time to pursue whatever was their curiosity, as long as it helped Google. Right? What came from that program? AdSense, which pays the bills, Gmail, which everyone uses, Google News, you know, Google Maps. I think even Google Meet, like all these creative aspects that build the foundation of Google were built off of pursuing curiosity and play. If you give your staff, and we're not talking about 20% of their time, but if you give your staff like three hours a week to just do that stuff, oh my gosh, they'll be so much happier. And they're going to invent something that frankly, you probably need for your company.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's really dive into the play piece. And I, I want to look at it from two different lenses. First, at the individual lens, and then we'll look a little bit in terms of the organization. So there are going to be people who are listening. And I, I've had many of these clients, such endearing clients, and we eventually get them to this place where they're going to say, well, like, what do you even mean play? Like, it's been so long. I, I don't even know what it means to play. And how do I start to figure out? what that looks like for me to even outside of work so let's just say this is you know eventually we want to get more workplaces doing it but they also that individual can find Mm -hmm. ways to put more play in their life so that person that's hearing and they're saying i don't even know where to start what do you say to them
1: sure so here let me first like define play right and then and then explore why we're here and then we can go to where we're going to go right So I define play in a very broad way. I define it as any joyful act where you forget about time, where there is no purpose, there is no result. You know, you don't have anxiety about the future. You don't have regrets about the past. You are just fully in the moment. You are fully in flow. You know, you're doing the thing that makes you come most alive. And that could be anything. You know, I think we, we uh, make play being like hula hoops or basketball or some, it, no, it's anything, any joyful act where you forget about time, right? And then I also talk about how play is the opposite of perfection. Perfection is rooted in shame, ego, fear of failure, constantly trying to do the right thing. And is this the right thing? Is this the right way, right? And if the pandemic taught us anything, There is no right way. We're all making up as we go along. None of us know what we're doing, right? And I tell people all the time, the only reason why my advice would resonate with you is because you've already told yourself the same advice. That's it, right? So play, so perfection, ego, shame, failure. Play, curiosity, experimentation, willing to constantly fail, you know? Like almost seeing failure as, just one of the processes as you get to success, right? And the, and the organizations that were most willing to fail in 2020 and fail, you know, forward as some people say, right? Um, are the most successful because they're willing to experiment over and over again. I had a friend that worked on the Mars Rover, you know, and her main goal while it was on earth was to make it fail in every single way possible. They needed to figure out 20,000 ways in which this rover was gonna fail because when they finally sent it 150 million miles to Mars, they, when something happened, they would have been like, we already know, we already know what happened because we've already done it so, we failed so many times down here. So I think embracing that level of failures, that's how you actually make something phenomenal and amazing. Now, how did we get here? The reason we got here is 148,000 no's. And what I mean by that is by the time you reach the age of 18, you've heard the word no 148,000 times. Oh. And you've heard the word yes, I believe between eight to 10,000 times depending on who wow. raised you, Right. And then you... Then you you know go to school where you're shut on all the time. You're told to raise your hand and ask for permission. And then adults, when you're at home, are constantly shooting on you. Like you know, you should do this. You should do that. You should major and you should become a doctor. And there's like, I'm six. Why are you telling me what I should be doing? <laughs> I'm six years old. But okay, you know, trying to live vicariously through you, putting all their anxieties upon you. And then you get to your teen years, and maybe we didn't have to deal with this as much, but the amount of social media comparing man. I was just watching a documentary on anxiety. Anxiety is like at an all time high in teenagers. And why? Because they get inundated with more information in a day than people got in the 1950s in a year. And all that information is telling you, you're not enough. You should buy more Amazon stuff. You should just binge watch Netflix. But one thing you should not do is play. You should not be yourself. You should not take any risks that play becomes such a rebellious revolutionary act. So for you to start a podcast, for me to make a ridiculous video, it just goes so against the grain because everything is telling you in society, don't play, don't be yourself, be somebody else, because then you can buy more of our products. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh oh I need to break this down in so many ways that was beautiful um and I, and I love first of all the way you, you you describe it as is as joy because that's one of the things I'll sometimes get clients to do is create a joy-filling or a soul-filling list because and then when they start to see it, it's easy for them to write all those things it's sometimes giving them per- themselves permission giving themselves the time to be able to do that I think of some of my um the the leaders I've worked with where they're like um so like, what are we trying to achieve here? Like, what's the outcome? Like, oh no, no achieving, no outcome. It's just joy. You just get to have joy, joy, joy. Wait, wait, why are
1: we doing joy? Is it? Why are joy we doing joy? Money?
0: I'm just yes. trying to get
1: an understand. Joy gonna help me in the fourth quarter. You know. Yes. Yeah. And men, adults, man, I say this all the time is like expectations of the thief of joy. Yes. And. Adults are so fixated on results, and we're so in the belief that once we get X result, we'll be happy, and it's like, yo, Michael Phelps got 23 Olympic gold medals, and then he went into depression. Anthony Bourdain traveled the world and did the job that all of us want to do, which is travel and eat, and it wasn't enough. So it's not the result that you're pursuing. And, and what I always ask people is at the end of your year, what do you remember? Do you remember your most productive moments of the year? Do you remember that? Like, is that, is that, or do you remember your fun, play, joy moments, right? You know, like let's learn from that. And also let's learn from the dying, you know, you know what was it? One of, one of the biggest regrets of the dying is uh, I wish I had the courage to live the life that I wanted to live, not the life that others expected of me. Like they are warning us yeah. to like stop chasing our worth as Viola Davis says, right? To like claim who you are because like that external validation is just not gonna give you the happiness that you deserve. And, and I know like, you know, there's a lot of people that have been trying to keep up with the Joneses for a really long time. And like that, maybe you're doing well. Maybe you're like really, like far ahead on the race of the Joneses, right? You have the better house, you have the better car, but is it really bringing you that level of happiness? You know, and how are you spending time actually enjoying whatever moment is happening right now? Whether it's a sad moment or it's a happy moment, just being in the moment right now
0: and feeling all of that. Yeah and I think as you're saying it right it's it's a lot of um, deprogramming and unconditioning because they the messages and uh, that's such a, an interesting um, powerful stat that you described around the no's and the yeses so of course it's like yeah have compassion for yourself there's a reason why it's like this all of those no's and the other one that really jumped out at me with what you said too is yeah, there's a trillion dollar industry who their job is to operate from fear, telling you all the things you don't have. You're not young enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not skinny enough. You're not, uh, your skin isn't beautiful enough. I, the list goes on and on and on, yeah. right? But but then if you do this to your face, if you do this to the thing, then you're going to feel better. And you and yeah. I both know that, the, that whatever that thing happens, Of course, being on a fitness journey and having a lifestyle change because you want to nurture and take care of your body and it feels good, that's from a very different place of, well, once I'm this size and look this way, then I'll be happy, right? But they're all convincing you and that's their, that's their role. They're spending millions and millions of dollars.
1: That's how they make their money, right? And I just heard this TikTok, which I thought was really interesting, where someone was like, I'm feeling fat. And they're like, fat's not a feeling. That's not a feeling what is actually underneath yes. that, you know, and in the U S uh, the weight loss industry is a $5 billion industry. We are the most obese and least healthy we've ever been so how is that happening why is we spending so much money but nothing's happening because they actually don't want us to be healthy if we actually were they wouldn't have an industry so so we just have to be like we just have to be cognizant of that's what's actually happening so when i talk about how does someone get in to answer your your question of how does someone get into the play mindset right um the first thing you have to do, and I learned this from my play mentor, Gwen Gordon, she talks about before you can play, you have to learn how to actually soothe yourself, actually calm yourself down. And you learn, your, learn how to take care of yourself. You learn your nervous system somehow partly by the person that took care of you the most. Mm. So if they had a lot of anxiety, they're passing that down to you. And they they soothe themselves in unhealthy ways, they're passing that to you as well. So you have to identify, are the soothing techniques I'm doing, are they healthy, right? You know, uh, what did someone say recently or asked? Um, they said, are your techniques in which, the ways in which you celebrate, the same ways in which you cope? like when you when you are doing really well and you go shopping to celebrate yeah. also when you are feeling really bad do you also go shopping we have to like explore those and and if that is like there's no judgment around it. it's more just be understanding of what is actually happening so she's like all right so first identify what suits you right is that taking a shower I have a lot of ideas when I take a shower is that going for a walk is that dancing in costume like what is the thing that calms you down Because you can't play in an anxiety-ridden state, in an anger state. And then after you do that, then allow yourself to get bored, Mm
0: -hmm. which is really
1: difficult for adults. And what I mean by that is stop binge-watching Netflix, stop looking at social media. And I'm not talking about forever. I'm talking about 30 minutes. Let's just start real small. 30 minutes to an hour. Oh my gosh, that seems so long. Look at your phone. You're on your phone four to five hours a day. You can find 30 minutes to an hour to not look at stuff and then just get bored. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is then, remember when you were a kid, that's when you had your best ideas when you were bored. Also your most dangerous ideas, but you had your best ideas. And then what happens is all of a sudden you get a nerve-sided idea, an idea that makes you both nervous and excited. And and it's it's that inner child whispering some crazy idea to you like, probably what happened to you is like, start a podcast, yeah. start a side business, create that video, email that person. You've been waiting for six months to email, right? Do that thing you've been putting off forever. Speak up at that meeting that you've been like, this has been such a stupid meeting. I want to say this thing for the last six months. I haven't said anything. Now I'm going to say it like take that risk. And I can't believe if I'm quoting, we bought a zoo, but I love it. Um, You know, he goes, all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage, 20 seconds of sheer bravery, and it can change everything. It can change everything, that one decision. So follow that nerve-sided idea, that exciting idea, and just pursue it. And regardless of whatever happens next, the idea that you're taking this risk, is almost like jumping in the deep end of the pool and realizing it's not that scary, right? Like what's fear? The acronym is false evidence appearing real. You just start realizing like all those risks that I was psyching myself out for, not that bad. Not that bad. And I can do this more. And the more risks you're taking, the more you're actually growing as an individual.
0: Mm. Oh my gosh, big time. I remember as I have an eight-year-old and 11-year-old and I remember, and I've been doing this since they were little, once they could speak and were verbal. I would get so excited when they come in and say I'm bored and I would not say oh my role is to try to put a whole list I would say oh cool well that's an opportunity what are you going to do nice. what are you going to do for them and I can give you countless examples so sometimes and sometimes I would give them a little bit of a leaning and give them a little a right. little hints where I would say you know it's a beautiful day outside why don't you go in the backyard and see what happens there and then they're like, well, I don't know. And then all of a sudden, time after time for them, they're used to there's usually like a five to 10 minute, right? So they're in the yeah. boredom. I don't know what to do with the boredom. Didn't give yeah. them something, gave them an opportunity. Next thing I would know, five to 10 minutes later in the house, they're building a fort. Outside, yeah. they grab sticks. They're putting things all together. They created this whole little game. The neighbors are coming over all involved. Yeah. All of this stuff that happened, but they had to get past that initial oh what am I going to like be in the spaciousness Uh and stay there and it's the same thing for adults and I I have to say one of the things I'll share with the listeners I uh, decided to do a 100 day sober curious reset so no alcohol for 100 days because I noticed I might have at the end of the day a glass of wine to relax that's my way to relax So I thought, you know what, I'm going to experiment and play with not doing that. So what starts to happen? Like all of a sudden I have this time, this space. And so those times where I would have been having a glass of wine, now Mm -hmm. I'm journaling. Now I'm going for a walk. Now all of these ideas pop in because the space is there. And the alcohol was actually almost blocking it because
1: I was unwinding. I love that. Oh, we got to go back to the part, first off. That's some amazing parenting, by the way. because what you asked, instead of telling them what to do, I think a lot of parents are like, "Oh my gosh, they're bored. I must entertain them and they'll destroy my house. You were like, let's just be curious. You asked the curious question of like, just go outside and just see what's out. What's, what's happening out there? What a, what a fascinating fun question, right? Because then it's just like, what is happening out there? And then they start making something. And you said it, right? We said it earlier, the future is where people are having the most fun. They're having so much fun that the neighbors start coming by and be like, what are you doing? Oh, you're not on your you know, DS you know, Nintendo thing? Oh, you're making, I want to make a fort. I want to do these things, right? And then the other thing that I really love that you know, I heard once from a parent, or maybe multiple times from a parent, some parents ask their kids, how did you fail today? like they want their kids to understand that failure is just part of the process. Yeah. You know, I watched this kid, I think she was 3 or 4 on skis and they mic'd her up and she's like skiing and talking to herself and she's like woo woo and then she falls down. And she's like I fell. And then she just gets back up and goes again. And like most people would be like, "Oh my gosh, is she okay?" and she's just like she's her parents are so much about her being resilient and learning that like falling is just part of the process, right, that she's now embraced that, that when she's like 20, 25 and she's failing, she's just like just part of the process. And I think instead what we've been doing is we've been shielding kids from this because we think we're doing them a service when really we're taking away their opportunity to actually truly live and feel what failure is like mm-hmm. because that's part of life
0: mm-hmm. that's part of living mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah you would love um we've got a little bit out of the habit but we did have the habit where i would ask my daughter every day about when we go to bed how are you kind um how are you brave how did you fail so that she and then she would start to say, like, oh, and sometimes it'd be a little bit challenging for her to think about the failures. And then she all of a sudden think of something. Oh, I was trying to put a poster together, the poster didn't work. And then so then I tried another way. She's like, I'm like, yeah, that's great. That was a failure. And so then she starts to see the iteration and actually the the win that came from the failure, because if she didn't do the first version, she wouldn't have gotten to the second version, which ended yeah. up being the version she liked. So it's just even getting them thinking about like, what does that even mean? Like, am I doing failure? Like, they're not even necessarily aware that they're doing it in a positive way. Like, oh, that right. got me to this place.
1: Right, right. It's just, it's just, it's just step B or step C yes. of the process, right? Yeah. You know, and you're not, you're, and no one's, because what is, what is a failure or a success? It's just judgment on an action that, that could be just neutral if you felt like it was just neutral, right? Um, and this might get a little bit morbid, but may, this might actually be really important for some of your listeners to hear. So I was talking to someone recently, this, name, this guy, Roni Habib, who runs this organization called EQ Schools about emotional intelligence. And so he used to be a, a STEM high school teacher at Gunn High School, which is the number one public high school in the U.S., it also has one of the most competitive, most anxiety-ridden experiences. It's right next to Stanford. Everyone goes to the top schools. Um, and then 10 years ago, I think when he was a, a high school teacher, his, uh, one of his students committed suicide. And he ended up having to speak at the funeral. And he made a pact that moment to be like, I need to bring well-being and emotional intelligence to not only this school but all these schools because at so many of these competitive high schools, the the suicide rates are so high, and the reason why goes back to what we were saying earlier. You know, expectations are the thief of joy when you're so fixated on results, and when that that high school kid doesn't think they're going to get into Columbia or Harvard or Yale or Stanford. They think their life is over. And that's because they have not embraced failure enough throughout their life. And they think they're going to disappoint their family, their mother and father, everyone that's always expected them to go to Yale because everyone else in the, you know, in the family went to Yale and then they get rejected. And then they're like, well, my life's over right? And it's because we've set this situation up for them this way. So we have to be actually more cognizant of what is actually happening. And then also Malcolm Gladwell said this, which is really interesting. If you want to go into pre-med and ensure that you actually become a doctor, don't go to Harvard because you might be the best potential doctor in like, in a, a regular, like in a public institution. But when you go to Harvard, you'll be at the bottom like 20%. So then you'll just be like, oh, I'm not valuable enough. So I'm just going to quit. But if you went to like a state school that also has a really good medical program, you could be in the top like 50 or 60%. And you're like, hey, like this is great. And you'd actually become a doctor more likely.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's shift over to, and I, I, I'm just feeling for everyone who's listening. I want to put a challenge out for you, like give some thought to that and give yourself 20 to 30 minutes in the next week to do exactly what just Jeff just shared with you. So everyone who's listening, we've just put a challenge out. Yes, Jeff.
1: I'll give you, I'll give them another challenge. This is even a harder challenge. Yes. Reach out to three to five of your closest friends, you know, and this is even for the people that are like, I never play, right? (laughs) You know, reach out to three to five of your closest friends and ask them these two questions. What value do I bring to your life? Because I think a lot of times we don't know what value we do for people. Like, what do I do for you? Like, why are we friends? So what value do I bring to your life? And then the second question is, when have you seen me come most alive, Mm -hmm. right? That's based off the Howard Thurman quote, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is for more people to come alive. So again, what value do I bring to your life? And when have you seen me come most alive? And another way of asking that is like, When have you seen me most creative, most playful, most myself, Mm -hmm. right? So what value do I bring to your life? When have you seen me come most alive? When you get the answers back and you write them down and especially from three to five different people and you can even ask this on social media, you'll start to see all of these patterns of ways in which you either are currently playing or ways in which you could play. Mm. And then you can go back out to those same friends and be like, help me play more in these ways. Whether that is at work or that's outside of work.
0: Mm. I love that invitation, Jeff. Um, I want to talk a little bit around in the workplace. And I feel like we could have this as part one and part two. I think we're gonna to have to have you back on for another podcast episode, Jeff. Um, but to start touching on a little bit from a workplace perspective. Um, there's so many different places we can go to, but I'm just aware of some that what we can people can be experiencing right now and having a lot of challenges with, which can be um, you've used the word, we know sometimes the eight holes, the toxic behavior. Right. Um, Some of that kind of stuff. How can we start to incorporate more play into the organization? How can that impact or how can people use that to work with or create shifts for some of that kind of problem behavior challenging behavior.
1: So if I'm talking to team leaders, right? First off, I'm not about forced fun. I did forced fun for like a decade. You know, Chad is not going to like Samantha more if they escape from the room. They're just not, not, or they go bowling. Like they're still going to hate each other's guts, right? So you as a leader have to ask, where am I at, you know, in creating a psychologically safe workspace for my staff? And an easy way of doing that is a few different ways. How much laughing is happening actually at meetings, right? Can you actually ask at a meeting, hey, is there anything that y'all are too scared to share with me, you know? And then would they be willing to share it at the meeting or would they be willing to share it with you one-on-one? Is there any, asking the question, is there anything that I am currently missing? Is there certain toxic behavior that we're tolerating? Because what is culture? What is work culture? It's the worst behavior that's tolerated. So it's it's not the mission. It's not everything that when you first join and they're like, this is what we do and we care about. No, it's how Chad is acting. If Chad is the worst behaving person, that's your culture. right and if no one's saying anything then you need to address that directly right but let's get into like tangible for dealing with the chad sorry if you're chad you know you're offended (laughs) by this i apologize but i'm gonna use you as the example dealing with the a-hole at work through play right so this is a this is a this is a process of setting boundaries, right? Someone's behavior is a certain way because it's been tolerated for a really long period of time. So if it's been going on for five years, you're not going to be able to solve it within a month, but you can start to set boundaries and and start to say what you tolerate and what you don't. So what I tell people, and this doesn't even have to be the team leaders. These could just be staff. The first thing you got to do is start to occupy those meetings so you have to start working with each other to be like we're gonna take back over those meetings that chad dominates and speaks 80 percent of the time right so like hey samantha when you're talking and he cuts you off i'm gonna get your back and be like let's let's Samantha finish, because she's the project lead on this. And I think we need to hear what she has to say. So you're doing more of that. You're also redirecting Chad. So every time he's coming to the meeting, you'd be like, hey, Chad, let me save you a meeting. We're going to yes and this entire meeting. And being that you are great at poking holes into stuff, I'm going to come to you afterwards. And we'll sh- I'll share the summary of the meeting, save you some time. They love that. Perfect way. Right. That's the easiest way to address it. Then the second way, and the harder way is confronting them directly and being like after a meeting, being like, hey, Chad, when you cut off Samantha and Kristen, you know, and and Jeff, what you were communicating to all of us is you don't want to hear what we have to say. Mm -hmm. So you're not attacking their character, but addressing their behavior and the impact they're having. Some people are going to be like, I didn't know. Oh, I'm sorry. That was not my intent. Hopefully that happens. In those situations where that doesn't happen, they're like, whatever, I'm going to do whatever I want. That's when you are going to the boss, but you're not going to the boss as a tattletale. That does not work. You don't go into the boss with emotions. You go in with facts and impact. Hey, I know Chad and this usually happens, right? The brilliant jerk Chad is bringing in 1. Point, you know, 1 million dollars a year, right? But he also got 5 of our staff to quit, which costs us 1.5 million dollars. Yeah. Are we okay with that? Because like Sherm did a study recently in 2019 and found that um what was it? Oh my gosh, I think it was 500 was it, I think it was 500, like, I got to check this. So uh, let me be careful about saying this. It's, it it was a, let's just say it was in the billions. It was in the billions that were lost in the last five years by fortune 500 companies due to toxicity at work, due to turnover because of toxicity. So we're talking, and I think it was actually $500 billion a year it was a ridiculous, uh, or in the last five years, it was a ridiculously high number. So you have to be asking that boss, like, this is the impact that it's having on the company. Is it worth having Chad, right? And this is something I've done directly and I've let people go and it changes the entire organization when you do, because you set a totally different standard. One time we let go of a toxic person and then we ended up letting go of four other toxic people, changed the entire trajectory of the organization. But then. He here's the last one. And this is the really hard one. We can go into this in another talk, but like there's the inner Chad, there's the inner a-hole that you have to deal with, which I mean by that is like, there's a reason that Chad triggers you is because part of you believes that you don't shouldn't speak up in meetings, that you shouldn't get paid as much as him, that that he knows everything and you don't know anything. And you have to address that within yourself. And once you identify, you're like, oh my gosh, I should be Chad's boss. I should be getting paid double as Chad. The next time he speaks to you in a certain way, you're like, whoa, don't ever speak to me that way. Don't ever be that disrespectful. And as soon as you start saying that over and over again to him, Everyone else, like Jeff and Kristen, everyone's like, oh my goodness, look at Samantha. She stepped up to Chad. You know, Wait a minute, I can step up to Chad too. And then all of a sudden, everyone is setting more solid boundaries around this person. And then they have to ask themselves a question. Do I want to stay? Because I can't act the same way and change my behavior. Or do I want to leave because I can't be abusive to my staff anymore?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so many great, um, thank you for giving some really tactical ways to work with it. And and I like what you've described, like sometimes it's that the organization just has to make the difficult, I, I, I'm going to use difficult, but it's the, I, I like to say sometimes short term pain for long term gain. Yes, uh-huh. that person previously was bringing in a million dollars and eventually you could get somebody else who's bringing a million dollars and creating a positive environment and more innovation and creativity because now that whole group is working together more effectively. So it's um, being proactive and um, but I like it because there's lots of different layers there because I've definitely experienced and coach leaders around that piece. What about that personality is triggering in you? Because they'll say like, oh, that personality really grinds at me because there's been many times in the past where they haven't spoken up for themselves with that kind of personality. And it's them becoming more empowered to be able to own their voice and say, that's not okay.
1: Yep. And Simon Sinek even talks about this. The Navy SEALs in the US will not take the brilliant jerk regardless of how brave, athletic, smart they are, because it destroys the team. And you've even seen this in sports, where teams thrive. Heck, I mean, look at the Raptors. I mean, they even thrive when they don't have a star on their team, because then everyone else steps up. And that's ultimately what you want. Psychologically safe work environments are where teams are bringing the most amount of revenue, have the least amount of turnover, and are the most productive. Yeah.
0: So Jeff, I, I honestly, we're going to book another time because there's more stuff we can go into the workplace. And I think this is such valuable insight. If you're okay with that, I would love to have you on again so that we can talk a little bit more. However, as we end today's conversation, I always like to give you, my wonderful guest, an opportunity to leave a final thought with the audience.
1: Ooh, I love the final thought. Ooh, I'm going to have to go with the goodwill <laughs> hunting.
0: So, so, so I,
1: you know, do you know, Goodwill hunting, are you pretty familiar it's with
0: it? My favorite movie. Oh my goodness, this is perfect, then. Okay,
1: all right. So you know the scene, but some other people might nah, not, nah, right? So let's paint the scene. Matt, you know, the movie is about Matt Damon being a genius, right? And he can have any job he wants because you know, any at any think tank and make millions of dollars a year. And his best friend at Ben Affleck is an idiot, like, or he's just like not a smart guy, he's just a guy from Southie. Right. And at the end of the movie, Matt Damon is working at this construction site with Ben Affleck. And Ben's like, When are you going to take one of these high paying jobs? And Matt's like, I'm not. You know, uh, we're going to, I'm going to work construction. You know, we're going to raise our kids next to each other. We're going to take them to Foley Field. You know, and that's just what we're going to do. And Ben turns to them and he goes, If I see you here in 20 years, I'm going to kill you. Like, I'm literally going to kill you. And Matt's like, what, what, I I owe it to myself. And he's like, no, you owe it to me because I'm going to be here in 20 years. and, And I'm okay with that. But you are sitting on a winning lottery ticket and you're too scared to cash that in. And for every one of your listeners, you're sitting on a winning lottery ticket. And the thing is, is you're not just cashing it in for yourself. This actually is not about you. This is the idea that Frankly, someone is waiting for you to do your thing so they can do their thing. So, you know, if you didn't start this podcast, I wouldn't be here. You took this risk to do this and play, right? And now I'm here. So now I'm sending this message to this other person that's listening and being like, you got to do your thing because the world needs you to come alive so other people can do their thing. And there's a specific person, maybe someone you even know, that's waiting for you to show up mm. so they can show up. So my question to you is, are you ready to show up?
0: Mm. Oh, Jeff, honestly, my my heart is so full. I just resonate with everything you're saying. We're kindred souls, uh, everything that we're talking about today. And I can't wait to continue the dialogue again in another conversation. Where can people learn more about you, Jeff?
1: Absolutely. You can go to rediscoveryourplay.com. And when you go to the website, there's a let's play button, click on the let's play button. And I have a bunch of play experiments you can do to learn more about yourself and learn more about your team. And then let's hop on a call together and figure out how you can kick ass in this world
0: by playing more. Thank you so much for being here today, Jeff.
1: Thanks so much for having me. This was super fun.
0: Take care, everyone. Please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace. Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.